We are back with the Irish pod with Harriet Minter, author, journalist, yeah. general aficionado of all things remote and home working. That's a great title. I'm going to steal that. That's much shorter than my usual one. I like it. What's your intro from your words? Because that might be a best place to start. Oh, gosh. Um... Do you know what's really terrible is I do change it depending on who I'm talking to. But let's let's <laughs> go with journalist, author, and hybrid work consultant. Ah. That's, that feels good for this week. I might change it next week. Okay, excellent. It's the topic of the moment. Um, well, we've got a few people behind the camera here, so we're kind of embracing hybrid. If you were here tomorrow, there would have been different people here. Yesterday, there were some different people again because we're fully embracing it. I think it's the way that companies in general have to move, right? Are you enjoying embracing it though? I think we've found our balance. I think um, I think there was, there's a kind of comfort blanket of seeing your people when you look out of the office and go, oh, there they are, they're there, and you know, everything's, you know, happening. But I think the lockdown was terrible for many reasons, but in one, positive out of it. I think we reconnected with our families and our friends and a bit of, you know, time for ourselves. Um, and we also realized how to embrace virtual working and realized that if you've got trust in a talented team that believe in what you're doing, they, they're going to be hard at work and probably give you more. Well, so that's the thing, which is, I think it's about trust. And I think what we might have learned actually in the last two years is that trust in your workplace is hard. It's not something that happens automatically. And we've kind of avoided that because we've just said, we'll put everyone in one place where we can see them. And that way, it's easy to trust them because we know where they are. Um, slightly like if you can see your children, you know they're not up to any mischief. And it's when they're quiet and out of your sight that things are worrying. Yeah. Um, and actually, what we've had to do is understand if we're going to have a hybrid model, we have to learn how to trust each other. We have to learn, like, what do I need to feel trust in you? And how am I going to ensure that I get that? Um, and that's hard, right? And that's when people go, oh, this is a bit difficult. I didn't like it. We'll just, we'll just go back to where we were before because that's much easier. And I think this is the trade-off, is realizing it's worth it, right? We get lots of benefits from it, but it's going to be a bit difficult. What happened pre pandemic and I don't want to turn this into yet another podcast about pandemic because we've done quite a lot of those I'm sure you have but were you telling this same story before that time and how has it changed like the reception for companies that you speak to oh my god yes I have been banging on about um flexibility at work generally I would say for about 10 years so I come at this from a purely selfish point of view right which is I did not like having to go into an office at the same time every single day. Yeah. So I remember back in um, 2007, I was working for a startup. I call it a startup now. Back then we called it a website, but now it's a startup. I was working for a startup and um, I had a lovely colleague who I absolutely adored, but he was very, very chatty. He loved to chat. And I had a particular project that required a lot of concentration. It was very detailed. Detail is not really my thing. So it was, it was hard for me. And I couldn't do it while he was like telling me about the date he'd been on the night before and all that. And so I said to my boss, I was like, can I just take this project and work from home tomorrow and take the company laptop? Because it was 2007. So we only had one for the whole company. Um, take the company laptop and I will go work from home and just get it done. And the next day, my boss agreed, the next day I was working from home and I sat down at my kitchen table at 8 a.m. and I had this 
what I thought was a big chunk of work that was going to take most of the day. And by 12 p.m., I was done. And I'm fundamentally, like, I'm fundamentally a lazy person, right? I want to have <laughs> the maximum amount of free relaxation time possible. And I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. So, like, I've just done a whole day's work in half a day. I want, as a rule, the most efficient way of doing anything at any given time. Why am I not doing this all the time? Anyway, fast forward, I've been working with different companies for years and years, thinking about the future of the workplace, how they make the workplace more inclusive for people, how we bring back employees into the workplace. And what I would say the whole time is, well, have you thought about how you could do work differently? Have you thought about how you could be more flexible? Have you thought about how you could offer people different options around where they work, how they work, what the timing is that they work? And everyone will go, oh, yes, no, we have. We've really thought about that. And it's a really good point. But it just doesn't work for our industry. And that was the line. It doesn't work for our industry. And I was like, well, I don't know why it doesn't. Because you're not physically making anything, right? If you are physically producing something and you need somebody to produce that, it is hard to take that remote, yeah? Everyone else, if you're in a knowledge sector, if you're in a kind of um, consulting sector... it's fine. You do not, your brain does not switch on the second you hit your office in the middle of the city of London. Yeah. Um, But unfortunately, I was not persuasive enough. So it took a global pandemic instead. (laughs) And that's what shifted things. It was funny. You said, can I please take the the work laptop? (laughs) You had to ask for permission to be productive for what worked for you. And that's maybe moving now to a position of not having to ask for permission. I guess that's a key shift. Oh, or do people still a have difficult to ask shift. For so this is the, the point about trust, right? Which is in an ideal world, if we really trusted the people that we worked with, we had a strong basis of trust, we would be able to say, this needs to be achieved by this time to this standard. Go about that however you like. But most office cultures have a high level of fear. Right? So there's a high level of, if this doesn't get done, I'm going to lose my job and I have to really be in charge of making sure that you get it done. And so what we're seeing now is this disconnect between employee and employer. So employees think hybrid working means I come into the office when I want. And employers mostly think hybrid working means we're very nice, so we let you work from home two days a week. Yeah. Like a benefit. Like a benefit. Exactly, like a benefit. And that's then when you get frustration because what you're saying as an employer is, hi, employee, I don't really trust you. I'm going to pretend that I trust you a little bit, but if I'm being honest, I don't really. So you can have this little extra gift because I'm nice, but I still want you back in the office all the time. And that doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel good. And then people say, actually, I don't want to work here where you don't trust me and you don't respect me and you don't treat me like an adult. I'm going to go work somewhere else. Um, And that's why we're seeing a kind of high turnover and a really big war for talent right now. There's, um, we had James Solomides from Near You on the podcast um, last week. And he was talking about some days he'd turn up to the office, he'd open his laptop, He'd not actually interact with anyone, do emails, documents, whatever, close laptop, go home. So the only benefit of that whole experience was feeling nice that he was there and, you know, keeping a seat warm. Um, So I guess maybe it's shifting to 
the trust is also in, I know if I need to be there for something, then I'm turning up because I'm going to be in the right location for the work that needs to be done. And that's um, also about kind of this idea that flexibility goes both ways. So often we talk about flexibility, we talk about it as employer to employee, but there has to that trust is built by knowing that it can also go employee to employer. So if you say, I know you're not going to, no, you're not planning on being in the office next Tuesday, but actually we really need you in for this, that there is that ability for somebody to go, okay, I'm going to do my best to make it. Yeah, and allowing for the fact that sometimes we have responsibilities outside of the workplace, we will have things set up, you know, but understanding that flexibility has to move both ways. Also really understanding what the office is there for. Yeah, it's not there for you to sit on your laptop and answer emails. It should be there to be like, actually, how do I build this relationship with people in person? How do I make sure that I get the kind of energy that I need from other people, that we have that space to actually kind of know each other and bounce ideas off each other and be creative with each other in a different way to how we were doing it when we were all completely remote. So how do we, so we have a policy here. I've said the word, that makes it sound like I've literally fallen foul of the (laughs) the very words that you said. So I guess it is a policy though. We'd like people to, um, if they can be in on a Monday and a Thursday, but it's simply because we want that ability to build that uh, team spirit, camaraderie, um, and also then it alleviates people traveling in for meetings when maybe one person's virtual when they could have been in the office. If we can, if we can get everyone on a kind of, I don't know, a respect that we're going to cross paths on a Monday or a Thursday, you know, there's a, the ability for those human touch points that are, are we ever going to be able to replicate that virtually? I, I mean, I don't think so. And I would say that on the kind of extrovert, introvert scale of who needs human contact more, I am not very far up. Like, I'm quite an introvert. I don't need a lot of human contact. And human's lovely, but I can live without you for a bit, you know. Um, and I still feel like we need that space to be with people. I think it's really important. I think what happens when we don't have that is we enter a world of sort of slight, what we might call hyper-independence. Yes. Where actually we're so worried about asking for help. We are so convinced that we have to do it all ourselves that we don't then get the best results. And we put a lot of pressure on ourselves and that's when we see a lot of um, mental health issues, when we see a lot of kind of that uh, burnout, issue of burnout. So I think we do always need human connection. I actually don't mind a policy. I think a policy is good, right? There's clarity in a policy. And clarity is like, it's really important. It gives us security and allows us to know where the boundaries are. Humans love boundaries. Um, But what comes with that is the flexibility. So for somebody to say to you, I'm really sorry, I really want to be in on Monday, but actually this week, it's not going to work because I've got this, this and this, but I'm going to try and make it work next week and it's definitely going to happen. Yes. And knowing that, and knowing that that's a conversation that you can have, that that's okay, that it's not going to be held against you for the next three years of your employment, that's what makes trust build in a workplace. Because it can be, it can be a uh, mental health thing of being isolated, I think was certainly for me, the biggest struggle when we first got forced into that situation. I like coming into the office. I like being around people but I also like getting my head down to focus on a piece of work um is there a danger that we could slide into a 
fully virtual setting, which ultimately is a downward spiral of people's mental health. Yeah, I definitely think so. I definitely, I mean, I think it's really interesting that, um, that the kind of key buzzword right now is around the metaverse and how we're going to create our entirely virtual lives. Don't get and, me started on the metaverse. <laughs> and yet also on the flip of that, when we look at all that we know, we know that the worst thing for our mental health in the last 10 years has been social media. We know that yes. actually the movement to taking ourselves out of communities and into isolation is the kind of a really big driver of addiction and breakdown. You know, we know that separating ourselves off, putting ourselves in a little pod and not having proper human warmth and connection, that's bad for us. And yet we're really committed to trying to do more of it, which I don't entirely understand. Um, you know, I think all of us know that over the last two years, it doesn't matter how great a communicator you are, you can't bring the same level of, um, what I call kinesthetics, that feeling to somebody over a Zoom call. You can get close, you can try really hard, you can improve your communication skills, but actually being in a space with somebody gives you a feel for them. And I don't think we wanna get rid of that completely. I say that. When we look at the research, what we know is that roughly 10% of people would be really happy to get rid of that completely. And there are gonna be companies that are built by those 10% of people for those 10% of people, and they will love it and they will thrive. Brilliant. And then there are roughly 10% of people who need to be in the office with people all the time and there will be companies built for them and they will love it and they will thrive. But for the other 80% of us, we need to make sure we get a balance. Can I rant about the metaverse? You go for it. I, I love a good rant. I, I just, I, I think everything that you've said is absolutely spot on. We, we, were, we were fortunate enough to, to go out to South by Southwest or South by as the <laughs> cool people that attend that thing uh, call it. And metaverse was literally like the order of the day. And my gosh, it was so lacking in true productivity tools. I think, you know, gaming is obviously something a lot of people do. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of other things that no doubt it would be useful for, but I feel like it's being jammed down our throat and trying to replicate something that ultimately it can't replicate, which is social interaction on a true connectivity level. And rather than technology getting in the way of doing that, let's just accept that sometimes that human connection is what we've evolved to, to respond to and be part of. And actually, how can technology help us do that rather than get in the way um, and innovation for the sake of innovation? Something interesting that I noticed about technology is we went through the pandemic and the way it evolved, which was... We do this thing on social media where we perfect our lives, right? So where we try and make everything look beautiful and all in one color scheme. And we never show the days when like there's washing in the corner and we've left washing up for weeks or whatever. You know, we make it all look really beautiful and perfect. And we started to do that with workplace technology. So we gave people um, the option to kind of blur out their background, which I can understand why people would want that, right? I don't want people seeing into my bedroom if that's where I'm working, fair enough. But in doing that, what we also take away is the reality, which is, hey, we've got half a workforce who don't have enough space to have their own office space within their house. That's an issue. Um, we gave people the ability to put a filter on their face so that we look better when we see ourselves on camera, 
right? And that's great. But then it means when we turn up in person, we're like, oh, oh no, I feel really uncomfortable. You and different. <laughs> you don't look like you do. You, you know? don't look like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right? And we didn't allow ourselves to get comfortable with that, to get comfortable with the fact that actually some days we don't look as great as we want to look. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing for me about human connection is when we are in person with people, we can't filter out the bad stuff. That's why offices are sometimes such a nightmare because you can't filter out your colleagues' annoying habits. You can't filter out the person that always wants to talk first in a meeting. And that is frustrating, but it's also the stuff that teaches us to grow and develop as humans. It teaches us empathy. It teaches us patience. It teaches us kindness. And I worry that if we ended up in a fully virtual world, we would lose all of that stuff. Just plug our heads into the to the metaverse. <laughs> there was those funny situations. I think there was one where it was a court case and the judge had turned up and he accidentally turned on the dog filter or the cat, yeah. it was a cat, <laughs> the cat filter. The cat filter and yeah. everyone was trying to get him educated on how to get, hilarious. Um, how can, that's the bad side of technology, but we're talking about how to build this in as part of our lives to be productive and useful and, and connect and communicate. So how can technology help us get there? Because no doubt it can, it's not all bad. Oh, definitely. I mean, the thing that I have loved the most over the past two years, it's not entirely true, I've loved a lot. I've loved lots of things, lots of things bad, I've loved a lot. But the thing tech-wise I've loved the most is the way that I have been able to be in a room with people that previously I probably wouldn't have been in a room with for a start. And if I had been, it would have taken a year of organizing, a 24-hour flight, um, a translator, you know, all of this other stuff. It, it actually made our world a lot smaller and it allowed us to really see other people's experiences of that world. And I think that is amazing. I think that is amazing. Um, so thinking about actually how do we use technology to help us do that, I think is really important. Um, the other tech that I, the other way I think technology really helps us and that I think is really interesting is that it sort of, we talk about how it speeds up the work process, right? So we can work asynchronously. I still haven't entirely worked out what that really means, but that's the theory. We can work asynchronously. We can do things independently. But I like to think that in a way, it actually also forces us to slow down. Like to really understand somebody on a Zoom meeting, you've got to listen to them. You've got to lean into them. You've got to really look for what's going on in their body language. You've got to really take the time to listen to their words. Um, if you are going to work in a way where you do part of your project and somebody else then follows up on that project, you've got to think about how you give them really clear instructions. You've got to think about being really um, honest with them about, are you going to hit this deadline? And if not, why not? And what needs to shift? And there's some of that which is allowing us to say, actually, if we are going to work in these more independent ways where we are linked through technology rather than just dropping around the side of somebody's desk, we have to slow it down, we have to be more thoughtful and we have to communicate more clearly. And that's that's great. That, as humans, is something we could all do with a bit more of. Yeah, simplify, I think, is a, is a crucial thing. Um, I, I still I haven't been able to replicate that quick huddle. Yeah. Like, oh, there's a problem, like quick, because it it's when you're virtual, it's, uh, oh, we'll organize a meeting. Oh, can you yeah. do this time? Oh, what about in half an hour? Oh, yeah, no problem. And then what would have been a three-minute conversation, quick huddle, becomes a 30-minute meeting. Yeah. 
and everything that comes with it. Let me tell you why that's a good thing. So what would have happened in that three minute huddle was you would have got everyone together in a three minute huddle for an idea that you've just had in your head that you don't tell them about instantly. And everyone goes, oh yeah, sounds great. What about this? And we can add this. And everyone's like, so exciting. Yeah, really into it. And then the huddle disperses and you have an idea that you've created in three minutes that really, if we're being totally honest, has not had a lot of thought put into it, right? I have many of these every day. Don't laugh. (laughs) (laughs) That is a beautiful place, right? It's a beautiful place of creativity and excitement and um, energy. But what we can also get if we take a bit more time on it is we can also get some time, we can set an agenda, we can tell people what we want to think about so they can go away and pre-think. That's a horrible phrase I just made up, but they can pre-think. Um, we can actually have a bit more space for that discussion to happen. Sometimes if you're not in a room with everybody being super excited about an idea, it's much easier to be the person that puts their hand up and says, This is a terrible on. idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have we thought about? Um, and so we can kind of deepen our ideas process. It's slower, right? It's slower. But when we look at um, some really interesting research that was done years ago by the Kellogg's Institute, which looked at diversity of thought when it comes to idea creation and problem solving. And what they found was that actually if you put um, a load of essentially homogenous people who come from the same backgrounds, same experience in a room together, they come up with a solution to a problem really quickly. And they feel really confident in that solution. Like, yes, we've got it. We've made it. If you put a load of people from diverse backgrounds in a room together, it will take them much longer to find a solution to the problem, and they will not feel as confident in that solution. But they will have looked at many more options, they will have looked at many more um, potential problems, and they will have come up with a stronger solution. And I think that's a little bit of what we can take as a benefit for that, okay, we can't just rush in headlong and get it done in a minute. We've got to wait for that person to finish, you know, doing whatever it is they're doing. So they've been back at their desk to have this 30 minute meeting. That's why those little huddles then became 30 minute meetings that then (laughs) I canceled. Because I was like, that's actually not a very good idea. Let's not even bother talking about it. Um, that, That is a good point. I think slowing down was definitely something that the majority of people did actually, because they had to do that and they took advantage of it. But how do we maintain, we, we talk about flow. Um, we talk about you know, finding our flow, conversations that flow. How do we find our rhythm and flow in those settings where we aren't all together around a table? And there's a lot of science and research behind how we can build those relationships and, and formulate um, you know, productivity out of those environments. How do we do that when we're looking at each other through a screen? Yeah, I mean, I think, so part of it is obviously what you're doing, right? Which is like, actually, how do we make the experience as beautiful as possible? Um, and we saw that over lockdown. We really saw that actually, as an organization, invest in making sure that all of your team have great tech, invest in making sure that they all have strong broadband, you know, the basics. But then also thinking about what's the stuff that's going to really help. So I, I loved the loved the Iris Clarity example, you know, being able to strip out the background noise. I actually really think simple things like set an agenda for your meetings so people know what's coming up and what to talk about. Um, also set a goal, right? Set a goal for that meeting so we're not all sitting on Zoom for an hour and then we have like, yeah, great meeting, guys, thanks. Everybody leaves and is like, what, ha- what happened there? Yeah, you what don't have to use the hour either, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... 
one of the things I wrote, I wrote a book about working from home. And one of the things that I said in it was like, no meeting should be an hour. If it's an hour meeting, it's 45 minutes. You can do that meeting in 45 minutes. If it's half an hour, you can do it in 20, right? Like it does not need to be that time. Um, but thinking about really how, how we can engineer some of that flow in the beginning is a bit important. Um, one of the things that I talk a lot about with companies that I work with is like, what are really good meeting skills? Actually, really good meeting skills is having somebody who chairs that meeting. It doesn't have to be like um, what we call the hippo in the room, right? The highest paid person's opinion, you know that? It doesn't have to be the hippo that chairs it. it, can be somebody else, but your chair's job is to make sure that everybody is heard. Your chair's job is to make sure that the goal is met and the agenda is stuck to. Pass the virtual talking stick. <laughs> exactly, yeah. There's a reason that that existed in our communities for thousands of years, because it worked. Yeah. Um, thinking about actually how can we make sure that we are... Um, we're aware of if we have one-to-one -one meetings that sometimes we don't check in with the person at the end of the meeting. Do you tell me what you heard here? Tell me what you're taking away. Tell me what you've learned. Because we've just talked to them for 20 minutes and we think that they totally understand what we want them to do. And then we log off and we go about our day and they have taken something completely different from what we've said. And then the product comes back at the end of it and we're like, well, I didn't want this. This is what I asked for. So actually check in, do that. Say, what's everyone taking away from here? What are you going to do? John, why are you doing that weird thing over there that I didn't want? No, 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 no. Let's bring it, bring it back and do something different. Um, again, what's I think important here is that the technology allows the space for that to happen, but what makes it work is us as humans being aware that actually we have to put the time and the energy into that relationship development. Where do we go next with this? What, what's the next evolutionary step of hybrid virtual working, but just work in general and our and our patterns and frameworks great question um so i i think i hope not but i think we will probably see first of all a backlash so i think actually what will happen is i think in the next couple of years we're going to see people moving back to the office so oh, really? yeah i do and i think that because um, when we look at where we are economically, we're going into a kind of economically uncertain world, right? So we know we've got a rising cost of living. We know we've got lots of things going on globally, which potentially are going to impact how secure we feel economically. And when people feel insecure in their own economic situation, what they like is stuff that they know. They like routine. They like structure. They like going back to what feels safe. So while we're currently in a place of the great resignation, everybody quitting and wanting to work from Bali, which would be lovely, um, I think the reality is we'll see the pendulum swing back and then we'll end up as somewhere in the middle. So there's some really big questions to be addressed if you want to have proper hybrid working, if you want to have properly remote working, things like what happens if we are a UK-based organisation and we hire somebody who works in Amsterdam? They are going to have different regulations. They're going to have different pay levels. How do we fix that? We've got to start thinking about that stuff first. We've got to think about actually what happens if we take everybody hybrid and we say you can have that and our productivity does suffer. What are we going to do then? Say so actually, no, nobody's hybrid. Everybody get back. Well, what happens if during that point, half your workforce have moved to the other side of the country? How are you going to deal with that? Um, we need to think about actually if we are creating these hybrid working environments, do we have 
the tech available to work in a way that feels easy, right? That feels simple. And not only do we have the tech available, do we have the training in place to teach people how to use that tech, right? I mean, I am still in every single meeting I do. At some point, somebody says, do you know you're on mute? Yeah, we're like two years into this. Everybody should know when they are and are not on mute, (laughs) but they don't. Um, And so we need to think that it's not just about providing the technology, it's about providing the training and the environment for people to learn and grow with it. Do I think that we are all going to be in virtual meeting rooms in five years' time with an octopus as our avatar? I don't think so. Thank God. (laughs) But I could be proved wrong. Um, I think what will happen is we will see some companies who just love it and get it, and they are filled with people that really want to show their personality through their dog avatar, and that is great, and I support that, but that's not where I want to work. And I think that will be the interesting division is that perhaps at a younger age, we will see ourselves deciding not what industry do I want to go into, but what type and way of working do I want to go into? And that will be the difference. Yeah, I think actually, just while you're talking about that, because I've got a question about training um, for managers and for for employees, but, but while we're talking about that diversity point and um, inclus- inclusivity, um, does... Does the hybrid shift and technology as a component of that make inclusivity as a value easier to achieve? Does it break down the barriers for, you know, the paywall or, you know, ethnic minorities or people with uh, disabilities? In theory, yes. However... When you're looking at things from um, what we call DE&I, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective, the number one thing you have to do at all times is challenge your assumption. And I'll give you a really simple example of this, right, which is a um, big organization I work with. So they're so excited about the move to hybrid. They're really into it. They really want to do it. And one of the things they're super excited about is it's going to mean that they will be able to recruit people Um, from outside their core traditional area. Yeah, that they are, they're not going to have to recruit just from inside London, they'll be able to recruit from all over the country. And they think that that's going to increase the level of socioeconomic diversity within their organisation. And so they started at a kind of entry level, being like, you can now work anywhere, so we want to encourage people from all over the country to apply. And they have people from all over the country applying. And then they interviewed... um, of people and they hired them and that was great and I was talking to one of the people they interviewed and I asked them what was the process like for you and they said well actually it was quite stressful because the process was all done via zoom and um I don't have a computer at home Hmm, so I had to go and find a computer I had to be able to have that whenever it was required for an interview I had to make sure the tech was all going to work on it you know there was an assumption that I was sat at home with my laptop and my excellent broadband ready to go. Huh. And Interesting. Yeah, right? And we don't, because, you know, we're nice middle-class people living in a lovely world where that's not a worry for us, luckily, we forget that it's a worry for other people. And I do think that's something when we talk about tech and inclusion we need to be really aware of, which is the fundamental buy-in level of that the buy-in level of it, the fact that if you want to hire people and you're going to do it all virtually, 
are you hiring them in jobs where they are going to have enough money to be able to afford to be able to do that interview? And um, particularly if you're hiring young people, that's not always going to be the case. Yeah. Um, so, yes, in theory, technology should increase inclusion because we should be able to um, hire from diverse areas. We should be able to say, particularly in terms of um, disability or um, ability needs, that actually that's going to be less of a problem. It doesn't matter if you can't come into the office every single day or if coming into the office requires, you know, like... If you're based in London and you're in a wheelchair, you essentially need a car to get around because so few tube stations are wheelchair accessible. We don't think about that when we're hiring people. And now perhaps that will become easier. We know over the pandemic, lots of people who felt, um, lots of people with disabilities who previously felt unable to participate fully in the life around them, had it opened up to them. You know, Mm. they could go to the theatre without having to leave their house. They could uh, be fully present in work meetings they hadn't been able to get into. All of this stuff, it's all there, but we just have to really check in with the people that we are designing it for first. Be like, hey, we've created this thing. Is it going to be accessible for you? Is it going to help you? How are you going to use it? Because often we design from a place of our experience, not theirs. I think that's a crucial point. There's a there's a um, an example that comes to mind of a of a leading bank that shifted all of their call center staff to mm. to home working. Why have they done that? They've done it to save money, really, yeah, haven't they? Definitely, because they don't need as big a office floor space. space. Yeah. But are they reinvesting that into equipping those individuals with? the technology, the broadband, and other solutions that allow them to be productive, because ultimately that's going to benefit their business, but also not be isolated. Yeah. Because I I do fear that the the shift has has to be balanced, otherwise we're going to end up with people, you know, just living, working, and socialising from... Their bedroom. Oh, their bedroom. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting is we talk about the shift in the workplace. I'd really love us to start talking about the shift in the home place. Like, actually, how do we start building buildings being aware that the people who live in them will probably be working from them too? How do we start building, how do we invest in and create communities outside of city centres? Um, you know, if I was I'm not, but if I was a shared workspace entrepreneur, I would be starting to think about how do I put those shared workspaces in, co- in countryside settings so that I can actually bring people from local areas together. I think that is what we haven't worked out yet. So we've worked out how to shift our work lives, but we haven't yet looked at the other side of it, which is like, where is that community if it's not in the office? Yeah. <laughs> Back to the point around training. Mm. Um, I made a point before we we started recording is this generational thing, but I kind of wonder whether there's like a multi-dimensional need for upskilling the um, the awareness of technology and then how we best use that technology. And that's both, and then the cultural piece around managers, yeah. you know, uh, and their demands on on their staff to be in the office or you know or not. And then the other way around, the employee understanding how to get the full potential out of technology mm-hmm. to help them be productive, but also the softer skills around, you know, building trust essentially both yeah. ways. Um, so one of the things I do with lots of companies is um, 
hybrid manager training, right? So I say to them, if you just think that your classic leadership training is going to work in a hybrid environment, it's not. Because it was designed for one way of working. And if you don't redesign it, you're going to run into lots of pitfalls. Um, one of my favorite stories of somebody I worked with, and um, they said, oh, I've, what I really loved, what I really loved about the pandemic is that I have a much higher trust in my team now than I did before. And I was like, oh, that's great. Like, what brought that about? And I said, well, previously I'd be in the office and occasionally I'd look up from my desk and I'd look around and I'd see these empty desks and, you know, maybe they'd gone to, maybe they'd gone to the bathroom, but maybe they'd gone out for a coffee with their mate or maybe they'd gone for a meeting with somebody I didn't know about and I just didn't know where they were and I found that very stressful. Whereas now I can see from the green light whether they're at their desk or not. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, I think we're going to revisit what we mean by trust. Um, and, you know, there's that, that idea which is actually we've, We've built a kind of idea of what leadership and management looks like. We do need to redesign it. We also need to think about, and nobody has cracked this, and it's such a great area if we can crack it, which is the concept of onboarding and training junior members of staff. Yeah. And what I really love about the debate around training junior members of staff is how oh, I've got to be in the office because, you know, you learn by osmosis. And I'm like, well, A, if you're learning by osmosis, I think we all know there's some very dodgy practices that have been happening in offices for the last 20 years that we do not want to be replicating in the next 20 years, right? We could let those go. Um, and also, most people don't learn by osmosis. Most people might pick up something here and there. Most people learn by doing, failing, doing again, getting it better. We shouldn't be assuming that people are learning by osmosis. We should be creating structured, thoughtful, useful training plans for them. The fact that we haven't done that and we've survived for the last 200 years is luck, not judgment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very, very true. Um, I think we're running out of time. Um, I could talk about this subject for, for ages. Um, just to wrap up, you've talked mm. about a few things, but what are your top tips for resilience? I think we need to be resilient mm. as leaders of business, but also as employees, for people that are starting out on their careers, but also for people that are probably further along in their careers, mm. how they can really get the most out of um, the current the current situation. So, what are your mm. what are your quick fire top tips? Oh, quick fire. Well, it doesn't have to be that quick. Fire, um, so, when it comes to resilience, I would say the things that are really important to me. First of all, um, resilience is not the same as endurance, right? So we kind of think that resilience is like, can you just get through this? Can you just keep going? No, that's endurance. We can all keep going if we absolutely have to. But what will happen is we'll come a point where we get to a hard stop and we fall over. Resilience is about knowing what's the stuff that I need to put into my life in order to assure that I've got that kind of constant energy flowing, energy flow going, that I'm never hitting rock bottom. And so I would think about that in terms of like, what do you need from people? What do you need from yourself? What do you need for your physical well-being? What do you need for your mental well-being? And how can you give something back? Because we know if we give something back, we feel good. It makes, gives us a little lift. It's very, very good for our resilience. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is um, the most important thing to remember when you're going through a hard time, right, is A, that this will pass because that's life. Like when you're going through a brilliant time and everything's fantastic and then a wave comes along and knocks you off your feet and you're like, what happened? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if life is good or bad. It will change at some point. It has to. 
Um, and the second thing is that there will be something in this period that will benefit you down the road. And I'm going to give you a little story about that. So many, many years ago in my 20s, I was in a relationship that we will call not good. And I was in that relationship for many years. And it was a, it was like a very kind of tough period. I really, it ground me down a lot. And um, the person I was in a relationship with was a professional poker player. They taught me to play poker. And eventually that relationship ended. And I thought, well, this is just, I'm in a terrible place. I've been broken by this. So I've made all these mistakes. This is awful. I thought my personal life is terrible. So the thing I must do is try and improve my professional life. Something's got to go right. And so I made a really big thing about kind of improving my professional life. And I ended up working for The Guardian. And because I ended up working for The Guardian, I ended up writing about women in leadership. And because I ended up writing about women in leadership, I met a brilliant woman who one day said to me, Harriet, would you like to come to this event that my mate's running? She's going to do a charity poker tournament. It's 100 quid buy-in. The money goes to charity. You'll meet some great people. It'll be really fun. Yeah, I'd love to. That sounds great. And she's like, it's a women-only event. It's a women's poker tournament. It's like, yeah, lovely, great. Went along to it, and um, I kind of thought that the like big prize it's for charity, right? Big prize would be like a nice bottle of champagne, probably. Anyway, we get in there playing a bit of poker, and I realised that actually there aren't many people here who really know what they're doing, <laughs> but I do. <laughs> And then they announced that um, the third prize is a bottle of champagne. I was like, okay. Second prize is um, a handbag that charges your phone. I was like, useful, great. And the first prize is a Hermes Birkin bag. Tom, do you know what Hermes Birkin bag is? I'm familiar with the yeah. brand and the concept yeah. of the bag, yes. Yeah. So I thought in my head, I was like, whatever happens, I'm I am leaving bag. <laughs> that bag. <laughs> yeah. um, and I did. And I won the bag. Wow. And I tell you what, a few months later, I sold it on eBay and I used that money for a deposit on my flat. And that would not have happened had I not been in that terrible, terrible relationship with a man who taught me to play poker. And that's why whenever things are really bad, I go back and I think something in the future is coming out of here that will be better. I'm, I'm, we need to do part two of this, which is <laughs> Harriet's top tips of how to win at Texas Hold'em. Um, so we'll, 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 we'll do that as part two. Thank you so much. Your book, Work From Home, How to Build a Career You Love When You're Not in the Office, yeah. is available at all good book stores. All good, all good bookshops, including the big one, but also my favourite, which is bookshop.org, which buys and sources from small local bookshops. Fantastic. Well, check that out. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really enjoyed the chat. Thanks for having Hope, me. Hopefully speak to you again.